Newman. And I'm Chris Yeh. And Chris, uh, how are you this week? Uh, I'm pretty good. So this week I did a little bit of traveling, although it was domestically in the United States. So I went to Nashville from Monday to Wednesday to speak at the National Contract Management Association's World Summit. So these are the folks who work on executing these big, complicated government contracts, which is how the world's biggest customer, the U.S. government, buys everything. And so I gave a talk that was a version of the TED Talk I gave for the Defense Acquisition University about the importance of being an infinite learner. It's also my first visit to Nashville. Never been there before. Uh, stayed at a hotel called the Gaylord Opryland Hotel. It's a Marriott property that is one of the biggest hotels I've ever seen. It may be one of the biggest in the world. 2,900 rooms. It is essentially like an entire theme park because in addition to the rooms, the center of the property is a giant indoor-outdoor space. So it's indoors, so it's air-conditioned, temperature-controlled, but it's got its own river, it's got its own waterfalls, it's got multiple levels, walkways, restaurants, everything. So it's kind of like being in Disney World or Las Vegas, but indoors and in Nashville, Tennessee. So that was pretty fun and uh, glad to got back Wednesday night and glad that I don't have to adjust to nearly as many time zones when I'm traveling just domestically in the United States. Yeah, people really like Nashville. It's like the up and coming, uh, it's like the new Miami. Right. It's the bachelorette, cap, bachelorette party capital of the world as well, hmm. apparently. So if you go to Nashville on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, you will see the streets completely overrun by bachelorette parties. Strange. Uh, I think it's because it's not insanely costly. And Nashville is a Southwest Airlines hub, so it's very easy for anyone east of the Rockies to get there. Hmm. All right. Versus so, Las Vegas, which is very difficult for people from the uh, from the East Coast to really get to. So it's kind of like a substitute for Las Vegas, and two thirds of the United States population is on the East Coast as opposed to the West Coast. And there's good weather, I guess. I mean, I've never been. No, the weather's bad. The weather's oh. bad. It is hot and humid. And humid. But I got to stay inside most of the time. Hmm. So that works out. Okay. So the topic we're discussing today is essentially how to think of decision-making biases. Mm -hmm. um, and this was, I always try to like plug your um, other work, Chris. So this was based on an interview I, um, I, I heard that you did with, with Reed uh, you know, Hoffman on the Gray Matters podcast. Um, and uh, the episode is called How to Decide. Yes. Um, you're really just discussing like how to make good decisions. I, I highly recommend people check it out. By the way, uh, on our Patreon, uh, when I posted these questions, so we, uh, patreon.com slash blitzscaling, uh, folks get to see the questions even before Chris. And um, I posted these questions and I hadn't said what I uh, hadn't like given a, a specific episode and uh, some of our patrons asked for the, uh, the link to it. So you, and I immediately responded. So, um, well, that's good. It shows engagement and I like the sound of that. And of course, uh, as you mentioned before, for those of you who want a deeper relationship with this particular podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash blitzscaling and you get access to questions early. You get to be a part of the community. There'll be calls that Julian does. There'll be calls that I will sit in on as well. And it'll be a great chance for you to get even more engaged. So I think in business generally, 
it's really, really, really easy to delude yourself into thinking things that are untrue. And, and yes. at the stage that you know I'm at, which is still the ideation stage very much, um, it's that much easier because you're in a world of uncertainty and you're looking for you know mooring or for for certainty and uh it's just very easy for your mind to play uh you know tricks on you so so before we go into you know the the, the topic in in more detail maybe can you talk to folks a little bit about like what are decision-making biases? Why are they, you know, dangerous or problematic um, as, uh, well, in life and then in business? Absolutely. So decision-making biases are patterns of behavior that tend to affect people's decision-making progress. And the reason they're a problem is they tend to cause you to make the wrong decisions. Now, why do we fall victim to these biases? Well, a lot of it is human nature. So there is a bunch of things that have evolved in human nature over time based on the world we live in. So a classic example of this is the negativity bias. Things that are negative are tend to be stronger than things that are positive. And that is because people who were overly cautious in the jungle tended not to get eaten. It only takes one instance of being too optimistic about whether or not that's a tiger in the bushes to end your existence and your ability to pass on your genes. So we are naturally cautious in that respect. But we don't live in the jungle anymore. And in many cases, like in the world of business, it's very rare that a, any particular decision is going to end the existence of your company. It will happen once in a while, but it's really, really rare. And that's one of the reasons why one of the most famous sayings about decision making comes from Jeff Bezos, who talks about, are there is are you talking about a one way door or a two way door? And if it's a two way door, just open the door and check it out because it's easy to come back through. So it's an example of a decision making bias and how you work against it. Now, the reason why it's so important to understand decision making biases and figure out how to overcome them is because as an entrepreneur, basically your job is to make good decisions. And your differentiation is your ability to make good decisions. And part of that is relative to a big company, you're able to make decisions personally instead of being subject to the group decision-making biases that often occur at large companies. And we refer to this as group think or lowest common denominator. And it tends to produce bad decisions at big companies. So in many ways, you could argue that decision-making is the key advantage to good uh, startup companies, which allows them to beat the big companies. There's an additional challenge, which is when you're... So, so sometimes it's easy to see your biases or the way you're thinking about things wrong. If you put things down and come back to it, let's say a week later, and you're like... Yeah, actually, like I was a little bit emotionally invested in this, and this is how I was thinking about it wrong. Yes. Um, but in a startup context, you, you don't have a week, right? Like you uh, often, I mean, sometimes yeah. you do it, and when you do, you probably should take that time. But, but often, you like speed of decision making is the main yes. driver of speed of execution. Um, so, so I guess there's kind of like a, it, it, a kind of skill or kind of like a practice to develop, which is a capacity to identify your biases 
you know, on the spot rather than a week later. Right. So let me let me discuss that because I think there's a cool middle way that will allow you to make better decisions. And it's based on a Russian folktale saying, which is the morning is wiser than the evening. So my point about this is the following. When people are faced by a decision, oftentimes their instinct is to procrastinate or postpone. And the biggest way this happens in startup companies is to say, oh, wow, you know, what should we do? Should we do A or B or C? Well, let's gather some data because we want to be data driven. And so they say they put it off, make, they put off making the decision in order to gather more data and time passes and maybe they return to that decision or maybe it just gets made without people actively making decisions. Very common sort of thing. And the morning is wise in the evening basically says I should not make a decision right now because I am emotionally compromised or I'm too close to it and therefore I shouldn't make the decision now, but I will commit to making the decision tomorrow after I've had a night to sleep on it. And it is very rare that there's a decision that cannot wait until the next morning. And so this is a very simple hack to get a little bit of distance to help you get a better decision made rather than postponing indefinitely or making a snap decision and later regretting it. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about something I've started doing recently, um, which is I, th th there are things I just don't want to deal with. Like, mm -hmm. it's just like, oh man, like, I know I have to tell my dad that I'm not going to go visit him. And then it's like, I just don't want to deal with it. Uh, or, you know, whatever. Like, it's just like things that it's just unpleasant to deal with. And I, I, I just put them off. Or I, I kind of like, psychologically want to put it put them off and what i do is i go to the gym hmm. and i bring a notebook mm -hmm. and i find it really easy to write down in my notebook what to do so it's like i need to do this i need to do this i need to do this and i can kind of like make the right decisions and it kind of removes the blockers anyways i'm at the gym like i'm not going to do anything about it right i'm just writing down this book and then when I get back to the office after the gym, I take out my book. I'm like, okay, well, here are the instructions I laid out for myself. And then I just execute on them. And somehow this like kind of like, um, you know, split between the decision of what to do and then the execution makes it just emotionally easier. I'm not sure why it's like that. Oh, it's actually quite straightforward. And I think it's a very clever hack that you have taken. So the first portion of it is when you say, I'm just going to write down a plan, you take the onus off yourself to make the absolute right decision. And you're able to just focus on, okay, let's just try to figure out the best alternative. And so that's the first half. And then the second half is you get back to the office and you're like, okay, I'm just going to execute this. And you're basically outsourcing the responsibility to the paper instead of you. It's like I always say about you know, doing work, just put it in your calendar. And when it pops up in your calendar, you're just going to yeah. do it automatically because you're so used to following the directions of the calendar. And so there is no reason and no heroism in always just using sheer willpower to get things done. Use structure to your advantage. Use the human biases that exist to your advantage. It's like I always tell my kids, if the world is rigged, make sure it's rigged in your favor. Don't worry about the fact that, oh, there are human biases and I must overcome and never have these biases exist. Use the biases in your favor. It is amazing just how compromised we are um, 
and how you just really need to like navigate your your weaknesses and it's not like oh yeah um you know other people don't have weaknesses like everybody has like a huge yeah. amount uh, uh, and like this is actually a topic today it's just like these kind of like like evolutionary biases that are ill-adapted for the the world that we live in the other thing is it's not just a question of these biases exist it's also there are a couple of big meta biases that exist for very good reasons but in the microcosm can sometimes cause problems. So for example, you are probably familiar with the term executive function. This is you, basically- I, I learned it from you, Chris. Um, all right, great. And I think I use it all the time, but I think, I, I assume nobody really knows what it means um, other than me. Well, executive function is essentially your ability to focus, concentrate, and do all the various things that allow you to execute, to make things happen. And the funny thing is your amount of executive function is limited. So as you're using it, you're burning up your willpower and concentration, if you will, because there's only a certain amount of glucose in your brain. And when you use it up, it's gone. Now you can restore it with rest by drinking uh, a lemonade or something like that. But the fact is it's not inexhaustible. And so as a result, a lot of the biases we have are just shortcuts to conserve on the use of executive function. And some of the things that we just talked about, like you're going to the gym and you're coming back from the gym and just faithfully executing what is on the paper is basically a hack to reduce the amount of executive function used per unit of accomplishment. And so, again, it is not something where you should beat yourself up and say, oh, my God, why am I so lazy? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you is that you're a human being. Instead, you should say, hey, how does human nature work and how do I use it in my favor? So here are a couple of examples of uh, decision-making biases that we'll touch on uh, that are specifically related to you know, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs at the idea stage. There's like sunk cost fallacy, yes. uh, authority bias, bystander effect. But before we look at those, we have a question from Ooh. our Patreon. And, you know, I love uh, our patrons. And so it's from Athena. Uh, um, and Athena asks, she asks, okay, uh, I agree. Also, when you are presently in the industry of your startup, this can be a double-edged sword to assume and or bias the preferences to know how, to be how you believe clients will respond. What is the best customer development and discovery pre-tech or app build to validate and understand what people are willing to pay. So I think one part, maybe we can break that into two. You know, one part that she's saying is, yeah, there's kind of like your human biases, but there's also like, if you're already enmeshed in the industry, you have I, presumably some form of groupthink where you kind That's of like right. make the same assumptions that people in your industry make. That's right. And that's actually very common. Uh, and so a great example of this is something that allowed PayPal to beat its competition. PayPal, of course, being a very successful payment service that my friend and our patron saint, Reed Hoffman, was a founding board member of and helped make successful. And what was interesting is that PayPal went up against a main competitor called Billpoint. 
that was a joint venture between eBay, which was the platform where most of PayPal's transactions were taking place, and Wells Fargo Bank, one of the world's biggest, most valuable financial institutions. And you would think that a company that was a joint venture between the underlying platform, which had lots of great technologists, and one of the world's most successful financial institutions, would be able to beat a scrappy little startup when it came to making payments happen. And yet they did not. And part of the reason is because they had set beliefs about what people cared about that were not actually true. So one of the things that Reed discovered in investigating BillPoint, and he would just have people talk with folks from BillPoint. They were actually quite happy to say what they thought. The folks at BillPoint were convinced that one of their trump cards, to use a term that has become very difficult to use after 2016, but nonetheless, one of their trump cards was the Wells Fargo relationship because people would trust a payment service that was from one of the world's largest financial institutions. And what they did is the PayPal people also talked to the customers. It turns out the customers didn't care. They're like, we don't care about whether you're part of a big bank or not. We just want this crap to be easier to use. And so they focused on just ease of use. They realized people didn't really care about financial backing or anything like that as long as they got their money. Because in any given moment, they were just getting their money. It's not like a bank account where you keep thousands and thousands of dollars. You just wanted to be able to pay for the stuff you bought on eBay. And so that's a great example of the conventional wisdom from having been in the industry a long time leading you astray. But that also reveals one of the key tenets of the Reed Hoffman mental model toolkit, which is to always start with a theory. And what this means is several things. The first is always start with a theory. Always have an opinion. Don't just sort of say, I don't know, maybe. You have to speculate. Even if you're not sure, at least put together a hypothesis. The second thing is it's written down. It's explicit. So it's not this hand waving. Well, we all understand how this works. Actually, I have no idea what that means. It's just a bunch of bullshit that people said. No, you explicitly say, we believe that the most important factor is the trust in the financial institution. Then you can test that or not. And that's the third part. The fact that you take a theory, you test it in practice. And if it doesn't work in practice, you change the theory. So that's why always starting with a theory is so powerful. I was... Um... There's also a lot of power in just the, the process of writing it down uh, and, and just like making your ideas explicit. So last week we were talking about, you know, my, my potential business and you were, you kind of flagged some, uh, you know, areas that would be important to de-risk first. Yeah. Right. Essentially. And, you know, I was kind of thinking about that. I was like, oh man, like there's this, like, like it's actually not going to be possible to de-risk both of these. And here's why. And I was sure that was the case. And then I was like, all right, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write down kind of like a memo for Chris explaining why that's the case. And I wrote it down and it was very detailed and had like graphics. I like really making the point in a way that, 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 I, that was the most compelling I could make it. <laughs> and then I was looking at it. I was like, actually, this is bullshit. Like, I actually don't believe this. <laughs> and it's like, I'm just making up excuses. And I yes. can actually, like, like, there's this, like, very slight change I can make to my plan. 
that would solve all these problems that I've laid out like this whole concept for. And like, I didn't need you to tell me that. I didn't need to like explain this to you. I just need to have like an explicit uh, explanation and then read it myself as a third yes. party, essentially. Yes, and exactly. And this, again, we can return to one of the greatest entrepreneurs and managers of all time, Jeff Bezos, and say, this is actually something they do at Amazon, right? He requires people to write a memo and the meeting begins with everyone reading the memo because he can't count on people reading it in advance and he doesn't want them just sort of lying and BSing their way through. So he makes the time for the reading of the memo. And the fact is to create a memo, it doesn't give you a place to hide. If you're bullshitting yourself, it will become pretty apparent. Uh, the equivalent of this in the writing world, and I always tell people to do this as a writer as well as, okay, uh, you're editing, great. Sit down and read what you've written out loud, every single word. And the fact is, just like when we're reading, we sort of skip over words and smooth things out. When we're talking about something, we hand wave a lot without even realizing it. When you get it in black and white in writing, there's no place to hide. Yeah, another thing that's kind of like adjacent to that that I've started doing is getting ChatGPT to explain. So like to so I, I feed into ChatGPT my text and I say, hey, please write this about the same length, mm -hmm. but just like more clear. And um, I have a prompt that's a little bit more complex than that because I find ChatGPT tends to have like a lot of like flowery, obnoxious language. Um, so I try to get them to speak plainly. But then it'll kind of like parrot back to me what is said. And there are a lot of things that it hasn't understood or like when you read in somebody else's words, you're like, actually, this makes no sense. Yeah. Um, so that's actually good. That's actually good for anyone who is particularly uh, persuasive. So one of the things I warn people is you've got to be careful about mistaking the words for the performance, which is one of the reasons why writing it down is so important. I can, using my skills as a public speaker, make just about anything in the world sound like it makes sense. And that's dangerous because that does not mean that it makes sense. But if it were put down in writing, again, as a skilled writer, I can make things sound correct, even if they're not, but I can't do it nearly to the same extent as in the written word. And again, in the, in the spoken word. And in the written word, again, if you take it upon yourself to try to write as straightforwardly as possible, then you'll be better able to judge. And then, as you mentioned, if you're still having problems with that, run it through ChatGPT. Have ChatGPT explain it like you were five years old and see what the plainest most straightforward explanation reads like and whether or not you be, will you buy into it or not. So, okay, let's go through a couple of these, uh, you know, decision-making biases. So one, mm -hmm. the sunk cost fallacy. Yes. Um, you know, what is that and why is it dangerous, you know, as an entrepreneur, especially at the kind of like early stages of your uh, business? So the sunk cost fallacy is taking into account the amount of effort you've put into something without realizing that it's a sunk cost. You can't change the past. You can't not have spent the time the way you spent it. 
And the colloquial way of putting this is you're going to throw good money after bad, right? You made a bad purchase. And now to try to rescue that purchase, you're going to spend even more money. When in actuality, you should just say, whoops, that was a mistake. Let's try something new instead of being beholden to the old. I sometimes see this happen with entrepreneurs who will say, oh, you know, I created this company. It doesn't seem to be working. Now let me pivot to something completely different. And my response to that is shut down the company, give the money back to investors, start fresh. And they're like, but I have this vehicle now. I'm like, yeah, you have the vehicle now, but it has this legacy where you've already spent a bunch of the money that you've raised. It will contaminate the, the business. It introduces distortions. Just keep it clean. Shut it down. Start a new one. And sunk cost fallacy is everywhere because, again, it is human nature to value that we put effort into. There's even a name for it called the IKEA effect, which is if you spend a bunch of time assembling furniture, you value it more. If you spend a bunch of time working on something, you are, as a human, inclined to believe it must be worth something. Whereas, you know, I'll look at it and say, well, no, I mean, maybe you just made a mistake. Look yeah, and is. see what the value is going forward. That's all that matters. It's a huge thing. Like, you know, Chris, you remember I used to organize these, um, you know, group discussions mm -hmm. over Zoom. And, you know, I've invested some time into putting that together. And we had interesting people. come. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fun. And, you know, we had like, uh, you know, a, 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 a very famous Harvard prof that would come uh, regularly. At the Very exciting for me because I listened to his lectures. And so it's so cool to meet him in person. Yeah, the former ambassador of the U.S., uh, Obama's ambassador of the U.S., uh, 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 Obama's ambassador to Canada. We had um, the head of Treasury in Canada, who recently retired. The, you, I don't think you participated in this one, but we had the uh, Minister of Education that was the kind of current Minister of Education. Very cool. Really I, think I, I think I was out of town, unfortunately. But yes, that is very cool. Uh, but, you know, in the end... It was not the most high ROI use of my time. It took a lot of effort. You had to like bring all these busy people together. And um, I, I like, it was interesting, but it wasn't like hyper valuable for anybody. Yeah. Like they're kind of all doing me a favor by being there. Um, so, you know, I, I just stopped doing it. And, and I know yeah. like, because I'd invested energy and reputation into putting this together, I was like somehow committed to continuing to do it, even though, you know, now it's just clear that, that, that it just needed to be not continued. It was also clear at the yeah. time. And it's like it, it, part of my brain knew that it should be shut down. And part of my brain kind of was just telling me that it should. I, I, it was a weird thing. Yeah. And, and that's because people are trying to minimize this potential regret in their mind. And that's the thing where people are like, oh, I was working on this and then I gave up and then someone came, someone else came along and they made a huge amount of money or became a huge success because I gave up and that would just make me feel so miserable. I'm like, yeah, but chances are you're going to give up on this and then nobody else will succeed either. Right. You're you're making decisions based on something that's a fantasy rather than based on what is most likely to happen. But that is something that, you know, people do this because they just, ah, I just, it would kill me if somebody came along and made it successful. I'm like, yeah, what are the chances of that? Who cares? 
And by the way, every time we try to do something, chances are it's going to fail. There are very few things in this life where you try to do something truly new and there's a 100% chance of success. There's going to be tons of failures and you've just got to accept that. And the more quickly you accept that, the more volume of things you'll be able to try. So part of the answer here is just being aware that the sunk cost fallacy is a thing. And part of it presumably is to get into like the habit of overcoming that, right? So if you're, you just like regularly do things and then you kind of accept that it's a sunk cost and you got to like move away from it. Um, but, but what are the other ways of countering this in the kind of like immediate terms, like quickly make good decisions that avoid the sunk cost fallacy as an entrepreneur? So I have a very simple, uh, very simple hack, which is to imagine instead of trying to make the decision for yourself, that you are advising a friend in the same situation. And so you say, okay, let's say my friend Julian, or no, we'll pick someone other than us just to avoid the confusing part. Let's say our friend Ben Kaznoka was in this situation and he had invested this time building out this, you know, series of salons. And he said, yeah, but you know, it's taking a lot of work and I'm just not sure if it's actually a good use of my time. What would you tell Ben? And the answer, of course, is you tell Ben, well, Ben, sounds like it's not worth it. I mean, why keep doing it? Just stop. And things often will seem obvious if we're giving that advice to someone else, and yet we'll agonize over it if we're trying to make the decision for ourselves. So, okay, self-serving bias. And I, I'm going to read, I kind of like look these up because it's mm -hmm. like the, the sunk cost is kind of like more well-known, but I'll read you yeah. the, de the kind of high-level definition. So self-serving bias is to select decisions which help you feel better about the position you're in to make a decision. So it's kind of like, hey, I want to feel that I'm like smart and able to make good decisions. And I'm going to make the decision, not that's the accurate decision, but that makes me feel smart and that I'm able to make decisions. So right. It's kind of like ego boosting decision making. Exactly. Ego-driven ego -driven decision-making. And that in itself is the biggest flaw because your feelings are almost by definition not rational. And anytime you deviate from making decisions based on what you expect to deliver the best outcome, you're going to get suboptimal results. Not all the time because sometimes you get lucky. But over time, making decisions that do not reflect the best reckoning of what is going to deliver the best outcome is going to cause problems all over the place. And the main reason this happens, it's not because people say to themselves, well, I'm not going to choose the best outcome. I'm going to choose this instead. It's because they never turn around and ask themselves, hey, what would deliver the best outcome in this case? They're just looking at a particular decision and saying, should I do this? Should I not? And they end up making decisions for irrational reasons. Uh, I often I often tell people, you know, oh, you're making this decision because it reinforces your worldview. So we laughed a little bit earlier about a certain former president of the United States. But once you've already gone down the path of supporting this individual, all of a sudden you will make other decisions based on, you know, that previous set of decisions that you made. It's not quite a sunk cost, but it's a sunk worldview, if you will. And again, you should be looking at these decisions on their own merits as to whether or not they bring you the best possible outcomes. The, 
it occurs to me when I when we're just talking about this that some of these, at least in large part, are driven by you know broader weaknesses that you might have as an individual, right? So you yes. might be like, you know, the, the reason why you would be very affected by the self-serving bias, right? So trying to like prove to yourself that you're smart, essentially, is that you have low self-esteem in yes, a manner. Yes, you're insecure. Yeah. And, okay, the part of the answer here, obviously, is just like, don't be insecure and just like be like, like work on yourself to be, uh, you know, a, a better person who has sort of self-confidence. But that, I mean, uh, uh, to a certain extent, like that's, that's not super helpful because that's, I, I mean, it's a, a reason to do that and, and right. people should do that uh, and I should do that and everyone should do that. But, 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 but somehow not as helpful as you'd like it to be. So um, I think maybe, I'd like to get your, your input here. The mm -hmm. answer that's more immediately helpful is to know what your weaknesses are so that you can know which of these biases sees or which mistakes you're more likely to make. So uh, um, an example of this, I, I've recently, like I've always saw myself as someone who's not very hierarchical in how I think Mm -hmm. And actually, I've realized that I really am. Um, and it's strange. Like it, the way I realized that is, it's kind of like this Jungian thing where it's like I was like really annoyed by people who really cared about hierarchy. And mm -hmm. I realized the reason why I was so annoyed by that is that I really care about hierarchy. Um, and yeah, anyway, so I, I just like have a your predisposition to, you know, care about hierarchy somehow. And, and uh, which is the opposite of how I think of myself, but, but is accurate. And so, so I will make mistakes because of that, right? Like, like presumably it means that I would think that your ideas are, are, are better than, uh, you know, Jeremy's or like other, like people are below me. Um, and, and I need to be, mindful of that so, so so does that feel like part of the answer to be like hey these are my weaknesses and that tells me what to be like careful about so i think that is part of the answer because self-awareness is very critical and if you know your inherent weaknesses then you are better able to compensate for them either by behaving differently or putting structures in place to address them so for example one of my known weaknesses, at least known to me, is that I am conflict avoidant. I don't like conflict. I try to smooth it over. I want people to like me. And this is generally a good thing because conflict is often bad, but not always. And when you need to confront someone, I'm not the right person to do it. So what I do is I work with people who have no problem being confrontational and then I turn them loose on the situation when I know that confrontation is required and that I'm not the right person to do it. Just like if you needed someone to be a yeller, I'm like, nope, that's not me. Uh, if you really want to yell at people, you better do it yourself. So there's that. However, the people who need this the most are the people who are often the least self-aware and they're 
mistaken understanding of themselves can cause significant problems. So for example, there are folks that I know in life and I have often gone to them with the following saying. I ask them the question, do you want to feel good right now or do you want to get what you want? Just a basic question because people will often do things out of emotion because it makes them feel better for a moment, but only for that moment. And they were actually making it worse on themselves because they've now made the outcome, the potential range of outcomes worse. And I've mentioned this to a number of folks. And one of them actually uh, made a Facebook post recently where he quoted it and said he heard my voice in his head and it helped him make certain decisions, which was very gratifying. Although I will say that this individual as a whole has made a lot of bad decisions. So I'm not sure just how much it sunk in. But my point is, you know, when you don't have self-awareness, even having that tool only helps you to a certain extent. So I think that what is maybe even better is something that combines a bunch of the things we've talked about today. So imagine, if you will, when you come to this critical decision, you sit down and you write a one-page memo to yourself so that it is in writing. And that memo is just seeking to answer the following questions. One. What is the outcome that I would like to see in the set of circumstances? And two, what is the course of action that will lead, most likely lead to that outcome? And why, in what are the reasons for this course of action leading to that outcome? In other words, what is the mechanism of action? And if you write that little memo to yourself and you take the reasoning that you might otherwise hand wave away and put it down in black and white, Again, somebody who is particularly self-deluded might still not see the warning signs, but it's going to take a lot more self-delusion. You've protected yourself better by asking those simple questions and writing down an answer on a piece of paper or in a computer document. So here's an interesting bias, which is the recency bias. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Donald Trump is famous for this, where it's like the last person said something to him, that's what he thinks. Um, but the, the, the general idea is like, you know, whatever is the last thing you've seen, you value that a lot more. So let's say I'm doing research for my business and I speak to like five customers yeah. and maybe they all have different perspectives, but uh, I, I just like overweigh the last interview that I did. And yeah. um yeah, tell me a, 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 a bit about that. Tell me a bit about, you know, how to overcome it. So recency bias is a special case of the general availability bias, which is just we tend to judge probabilities and meanings and things like that by how easily they come to our mind. And this is obviously an incorrect way of doing it. It is a heuristic that delivers bad results because, of course, the things that jive best with our worldview or, or what we like are going to tend to come to mind more quickly and therefore will overestimate their probability. Or in other cases, things that are very vivid will come to our mind more easily and will overestimate the probability. A great example of this, which has been tested by social scientists, is to describe uh, a particular individual and say, which of these is more likely and it's, you know, so-and-so is a librarian, so-and-so is a librarian and wears glasses. Obviously, some librarians don't wear glasses. And so the fact that somebody is a librarian is going to be more probable than somebody is a librarian yeah. who wears glasses. And yet people always pick 
that the person has a is, a is a librarian wears glasses because that's the stereotype in their mind. It comes to their mind more easily. The availability bias causes them to choose that. So the way you counteract that is by making your decision-making process a bit more explicit. So it could be by taking all these inputs into account and putting them into a chart. So you could say, oh, well, this number of people said this, number, this number of people said this, this number of people said this. And that allows you to take a more abstract approach to it that will cause you to look at it from a perspective of the big picture as opposed to just what happened most recently. I've actually worked with a number of folks. There's one CEO I've worked with over the years who's really good at doing that, really good at, at structuring everything into data so that, again, don't always make the right decisions, but at least you're thinking about it from a data perspective instead of an anecdote perspective. It's interesting. One of the commonalities in your advice here, or what, what seems to be working for folks is to make things explicit and put things into different um, mediums or different contexts, right? Yes. So um, what, why, why is that such a powerful meta tool for kind of like thinking, I guess? Excellent question. So if we think about things like logic, and the scientific method, which are some of the most powerful inventions mankind has ever created. The reason they are powerful is because they are constantly making reference to reality. They are trying to ground themselves in reality in what actually is, as opposed to focusing on what we want. And some people would say, oh, you're taking the emotion out. I'm like, no, that's not the intention. I mean, that may be the effect, but that's not the intention. The intention is just how do you accept what reality is? How do you make sure you're operating off a correct understanding of the world? Doesn't mean you have to like that, but only by operating off that correct understanding can you decide if you want to make a change. And so when we talk about making things explicit putting it in a different medium, those are all things in service of anchoring your decision-making process to reality. And the more reality-based your decision-making process, the more effective it will be. So let's do one last one, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, and, and, and it's the conformity bias, mm. right? I, I just feel it flows so well for, for what you're saying. I was going to wrap things up, but I really do want to touch on this. No, no, I, I have no problem with that. Uh, so I, at least I think that I, like I tend to be very. Um, uh, you're not a conformist. I'm not yeah, going to exactly. say you're a non-conformist like, because that in itself is a bit conforming, but you correct. are not a conformist. Yeah, like to assert, like if anything, my my bias is to not conform for the purpose of not conforming. I actually have like catch myself um, and and stop myself from doing that. But but I my understanding is that that's pretty. It's not totally rare. It's not like you never meet anyone like that. But it's not a majority of people. Right. It's the twenty um, percent rather than the eighty percent. So, so tell me a bit more about, about, about that. Like what's, what's the danger of the conformity bias? And like actually my non-conformity may be in somehow a, conform, a version of the conformity bias as well. Right. And again, they're, they're sides of the same coin. So the conformity bias is let's understand the mechanism behind it. Uh, the mechanism behind it is essentially the notion birds of a feather flock together. 
And what birds of a feather flock together means is that similarity breeds and similarity or familiarity, however you want to describe it, but I would say similarity breeds positive emotion. We want to be around people who agree with us. And I often tell people, you can sort of see this at work. When people talk about Elon Musk, who is one of the most polarizing figures in the world right now, what I tell them is you have to understand things change dramatically, primarily after the pandemic. And he essentially was incepted into becoming a cult follower and conspiracy theorist. So when the pandemic happened, up until that point, Elon Musk is, you know, it was this widely admired hero. Oh my gosh, you know, everyone else is building a social network. He's building rocket ships and electric cars and changing the world and making the world a better place. Almost uh, very high approval rating. And then the pandemic comes and he gets into a fight with the county of Santa Clara over whether or not he can keep the Tesla factory open because they consider it to be a health hazard. And during this time, the people who are uh, on the side of the county of Santa Clara and believing that COVID-19 represented a major threat are now criticizing him. And the people who believe that COVID-19 is not a threat because Donald Trump told them it's just, just going to go away and it's only the weak people who would succumb or what have you, then started praising Elon Musk. And so what happened? He decided that he wanted to spend time with the people who liked him and said good things about him rather than the people who had previously said nice things about him, but now are saying mean things about him. And so he basically followed the birds of a feather principle and ended up turning himself into a conspiracy theorist. Because of course, once you become a conspiracy theorist, non-conspiracy theorists are really going to give you negative feedback, whereas your fellow conspiracy theorists will give you all the positive feedback you could ever want. So that is the problem with the conformity principle. It has nothing to do with attachment to reality. It has to do with popularity. And it might be popularity within a subgroup at that, not just uh, popularity as a whole. Popularity as a whole is bad. Popularity within a splinter conspiracy theorist group is even worse because it has no attachment to reality. Things that are popular in the real world might or might not have an attachment to reality, but they're more likely to have an attachment to reality than a conspiracy theorist. So the best thing is to approach things from the perspective of what actually is. The next best thing is to approach the perspective of what is generally agreed upon. And then the worst thing is to focus on whatever it is that people who like me think. So there's this weird thing that happens that I've been thinking about maybe for the last year uh, as things have gone a little bit more heated uh, mm -hmm. politically, um, which is it's really not in other people's interests to call you out on your bullshit. Yes. Right. And and, and I actually, so, so let's say right now, like, like I've seen that, like sometimes you, you, you hear like you're in a situation and you just like disagree with people. And especially here, like I'm in, Chiang Mai, which is a small town in, in Thailand. I'm in a co-working space. I, I don't really care about the people here, to be honest. Like, I, I, I've no, like I'm never going to see them again. I, I want to get along with them, but I'm not like, right. you know, really committed to long-term friendships with them, right? And so, and, and one of the things I noticed is like, if you disagree with people on things, they just like you less, right? Yes. 
if I'm in New York or San Francisco or places where I know that I'll see the people again, I actually make an effort to just not disagree with them. Here, I, I make less of an effort because I care less. Yeah. And so I've been able to observe this, which is like, if you disagree with someone, they will like you less. And it's not that they don't like you. It's just they just like you less. And right. Even if they're not trying to be mean, that's just human nature. So it's really, really not in anyone's interest to ever disagree with you. And that means that, let's say, take an Elon Musk case. Like, he had this weird thing where he's like rebranding Twitter to be like X, which is like super weird, right? Yeah, but, it's a very bad idea. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I, I, I've been a bit less negative on like uh, uh, Elon Musk than you have, but that's obviously stupid, right? Like that's obviously not the right. right move. And how is it possible that nobody would tell him that that's weird? And I mean, the, the answer is that it's not in anyone's interest to do that. And like, how, how so, do you deal that situation? So let's talk about this because this is one of the brilliant things that our patron saint Reed Hoffman does. And Reed is not perfect. Nobody is. But he is always striving to try to stay grounded to reality. And again, I don't think he always succeeds. There's been things that he and I have disagreed about. And again, I, I like to think sometimes I'm right and sometimes he's right. It's not like uh, I believe that I'm universally right about this sort of thing. But what he does is he'll ask people like, so the common thing is when you have something you're trying out, you'll ask people, what do you think? And what happens is just like you described, the people who want to preserve or strengthen the relationship will say, that's a great idea. Yeah. And the only people you can trust to, in that instance, give you a, a, a realistic straight answer are people who you know really well, who believe that the relationship is so strong that they can tell you the truth. Now, the way Reed hacks this is he will make a statement and then say, help me figure out the arguments against that. Or help me figure out what's wrong with that statement. Giving people permission to provide that kind of feedback. And so, again, it's the same sort of thing. Like when Reed gives a speaking engagement, when he comes off the stage, he'll ask people almost universally, is there something I could have done better? What else could I, what else could I have done to make that even better? Because as I like to say, if I come off the stage and ask someone, hey, how did that go? They're never going to say, wow, you were off your game today. That sucked. They're going to say, that's great. That's fantastic. There are ways to judge whether or not you actually did well. It's like, you know, did they give you a standing ovation? How many people mob you afterwards? And so on and so forth. But, you know, asking them, hey, how did I do? is not one of the ways that's going to get you the right information. I'm sure that works. Like, I actually believe that that works as a leader, right? Where yeah. you, you kind of give per people permission and like, People want to say true things. They want to be negative. Like this, 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 and they're stopping themselves if you give them permission. But yeah. the reality still is that you're better off, even like as the kind of like not the leader, as a, as a subordinate, you are better off still saying uh, nice things. Yes uh, and no. So I'm going to agree with you and disagree with you, which of course is a classic way of navigating this sort of conflict. The where, where I'm going to agree with you is there is been done on the so-called positivity ratio, sometimes known as the Losada ratio, which basically says right. that 
in order for relationships to work, there has to be more positive feedback than negative feedback. And often the optimal ratio is actually five to one, five positive things for every negative thing. And that's because negative is stronger than positive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're right that you have to make sure that you maintain a high positivity ratio. By the way, going higher is not necessarily good either because then the people don't believe you. And so that's why there actually is a roughly optimal level. And so what that suggests is the following. If you are not in danger of dropping to too low a positivity ratio, speaking the truth is actually helpful because it helps get you to that 20% ratio. Uh, a great example of this is I was a part of a team that Reed had gathered to work on the impromptu book project, but we were doing other things then. And somebody showed a video, which was interesting. So you may recall in the past couple of months, there was sort of this discussion of a national divorce, which is the idea right. of, you know, hey, red states and blue states, what if the country were actually separated? Well, this was before that whole topic came up. And one of the people there showed a uh, basically a, a, a reel, a, a sizzle reel of exploring that and having people talk about it and using comedians and stuff like that. And, you know, afterwards, the question, oh, what do you think? Oh, that was fantastic. That was amazing. And I'm like, this is insanely dangerous and you should not do this. This is a terrible idea. If you want to harm America, release this. And it's hard when you are surrounded by people that you respect and that you hope respect you to be the person that stands up and says, this is a terrible idea. But I did it. And I did it because I think that I'm a generally positive person. So when I do criticize, people understand I'm doing it for a reason, not just because I'm a negative Nelly. And because, and this is the important part, if you bring up the criticism or you disagree and later events prove that you were correct, people will also remember that. So what has happened since then? So I said, this is a terrible idea. This is dangerous for the country. It's not going to go well for you if you bring this out. And what happened was people like Marjorie Taylor Greene started talking about getting a national divorce and were roundly pilloried. And the whole thing made people a laughingstock. And needless to say, this particular project has now been buried. We'll never see the light of day. And I said, the problem is, you know, you're sitting in, uh, you're sitting in, you know, classic liberal bubble, liberal progressive bubble, and you're thinking to yourself, this is a great idea. And in actuality, go out there and, and look, spend some time in the rest of the country. You'll see this is a terrible idea. Nobody is going to react to this the way you think you are. It's only going to fuel the flames of division and you should not do this. And I invested a couple of hours having conversations with the person who put this together. And again, I don't know if ultimately uh, those decisions, those discussions were the thing that made the difference, or if it was just seeing people like Marjorie Taylor Greene be ripped apart that caused him to reconsider. But I like to believe that the next time I go to him with something like this, he will be more likely to listen. So Machiavelli has a recommendation for this. Hmm. And brilliant, brilliant writer. Yeah, it's been very misunderstood. And um, fundamentally, I think the way in which people misunderstand Machiavelli is that the, he, his, um, his recommendation essentially be like much more pragmatic. 
And if you're in today's context, that might not be the right thing to do. But in mm -hmm. the context he was in, which was like Correct. much less pragmatic, like he was actually just advocating for people who have the level of pragmatism that we have today. Um, so like he's kind of like advocating for today's status quo uh, right. somehow. But, but anyway, uh, uh, his recommendation, and here I'm, I'm you know, A, paraphrasing, and B, I haven't read this book. Right, my years. recollection of, of The Prince is not good enough to know whether it's accurate or not, but you know, hopefully it will be directionally correct. So it's something along the lines of, like you have your court, right? Yeah. And what you want to avoid is that every, you're the prince. Yeah. So you want to avoid where everybody's always telling you that you're wrong. Right, it's because uh, it, it's kind of like non-functional and undermines right. the authority. And so, what he recommended, that, but at the same time, you want to get actual, real input from people. Right, because if everyone always says you're right, that's not good either. And what he recommended you do is you have certain people, and you give them the permission to challenge you, and you kind of like elevate them when they challenge you. But you don't let anybody else do it. Um, and yeah, that's kind of like a, 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 an interesting um, you know, take on it, where it's like you, you don't want you know, 100 people's negative opinion, but you want like five people to actually tell you what's up. Yeah. And you give them the absolute permission, and you elevate them, and you kind of like highlight how much you appreciate when, and it's also a way of conveying power publicly to them, you know, in the group context. Yeah, no, and that makes sense. And that is, um, that's a role that I play and it does confer some status, right? The fact that I am willing to disagree with powerful people or disagree with a room, provided I can make it stick, creates a greater sense of power, right? It is, but, but again, it is very key, very key, and this is why the, Nick Machiavelli's advice is so smart. A person who goes against the majority and loses over and over again will lose all their credibility. A person who goes against the majority but is rewarded for it with status, that person maintains their credibility, maintains their ability to influence others as a result. So Chris, uh, you know, as always, it's been really, really interesting. Uh, you know, thank you, you know, for the time. I'm going to have a, a final shout out here to folks. If you found any of this interesting, uh, you know, please subscribe and like this video so that, and mostly like, because uh, that, that will actually get recommended to you um, so that you see more, you know, advice from Chris. If you know any entrepreneurs or prospective entrepreneurs who would benefit from uh, Chris's advice, uh, please just share this with them. And, uh, you know, thank you to our team, Shlok, Brendan, and Jeremy for making all this possible. And uh, Chris, thank you for, uh, you know, the, the, the advice. My pleasure, Julian. And as always, folks, if you enjoyed this, don't forget that on patreon.com slash blitzscaling, you could subscribe and become a patron hear the questions in advance. You can even ask questions as you saw during this, this particular broadcast and really engage with the rest of the community.